Alright, hello everyone and welcome back to Left Inside. It's Dermot on host duty today and I'm also joined by Keen Prendeville. Hey Keen, how you getting on? Hey, how things? So on uh, Thursday morning, a report came out from the Dáil Committee that the government, Sinn Féin and Labour had agreed to alter the speaking order, which effectively prioritised multiple contributions from the larger parties and understandably led to a lot of resistance from the smaller parties like Solidarity People for Profit, the Sock Dems and the Independents. This all came to a head late last night with a lively back and forth. And in order to discuss what happened and kind of go through the implications of this change, we're delighted to have on the line People for Profit, TD, Richard Boyd Barrett. Hi, Richard. Hey, Dermot. Hey, Keen. How are you? Not too bad. Great to have you on. How are you feeling after your late night? Uh, a bit worn out, to be honest. <laughs> and the whole week, uh, it was manic. Uh, but particularly last night was, yeah... Uh, a bit unedifying in many ways. What time were you there till? I tuned out at about 1am. Yeah, no, I, I, I skipped at about midnight because I thought after, after the, uh, or a bit after midnight maybe, the, after they rammed through the changes to the speaking order, it was clear the government weren't interested in debating anything. They just wanted to ram through their agenda, and so it was pointless. They they refused a debate on the changes that led to the row, and that was you know that was yeah. that made it worse. You know, it was bad enough what they were trying to do, but then they didn't even want to discuss what they were uh, what they wanted to do because they wanted to ram it through in the dead of night on the last day of the doll when there was a lot of other things being rammed through and hoped that nobody would notice. That really, I mean, yeah. to be honest, we were all run around so much. I don't think the full significance of what they were doing really immediately dawned on us uh, until we sta- started to look into it. And then we realized this was a really serious move by the government to massively downgrade the position of uh, the left and smaller parties in the all. And that's, you know, it was clever and cynical maneuvers by them. And I think it was kind of revenge mm. for the trouble we have caused them over the last three weeks. Just for people that, that maybe weren't following the ins and outs of it and what it means, could you go over, like, what, what was the change to the speaking order and what, what, why does it matter? What impact does it have? Okay, so uh, since the second doll, like in the 20s, there has been a convention... And now, this is obviously linked to the issue of democratic accountability for the government and government measures and uh, laws, that immediately after the government presented their policy or their legislation, all of the parties in the door would have an opportunity on the first round of discussion to respond to the measures or to the legislation. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, the size proportionality of parties would kick in. So unless there was a guillotine imposed on the legislation, everybody could have as much time as they wanted to speak. But the government were being very dishonest in the debate, saying, oh, you get all the speaking time. That's nonsense. Legislation, normally speaking, doesn't have any limit on how long it can be debated. And anybody who wants to debate it can debate it uh, and speak unless the government itself imposes a guillotine on the time, which in fact they did several times this week. Uh, So that's the only thing that limits the time, is the government. Um, But it was the convention that every party in the first hour roughly of that, or hour and a half, would get to speak to respond to the legislation. So that we got to see all perspectives quite quickly 
on the legislation. And that's important for democracy. It's important for the public watching in so they can get a clear understanding by looking at an hour, an hour and a half of the debate. What is the government trying to do and what are the, all the different opposition parties saying about it? What they have done now is uh, driven a coach and horses through that. So you won't hear sometimes for hours and hours, three or four hours in the case of some of the smaller independent groups, what they have to say about these measures or this legislation, by which time most people will have tuned out. Uh, mm. the, the media certainly won't be still listening. Uh, you'd want to be a very yeah, nerd, yeah. you'd want to be a big political nerd, a member of the public to watch a four or five hour debate. So you're not going to hear a lot of points of view at all. And that's what the government wants. They want certain points of view totally excluded in reality yeah a lot has been made of how this kind of narrows the debate not only in the chamber but also how that's reflected in the media and things like that just on this how was it achieved like we we had made note that they'd really been trying to bulldoze through this reform on the last day how how did that take place yeah that's a good question and you see one of the positive things that emerged from the last stall because the government was a minority in the last stall was a thing called the business committee and the business committee organized the schedule of the doll instead of it being organized by the government it was organized on a consensus basis with all parties represented at uh, a business committee and amazingly you know uh, that committee worked really really well and pretty much everybody was accommodated the government would set the agenda but then the opposition could say well could you, could you not maybe just have a, a debate on this issue or could we look a little bit more at that and broadly everybody was accommodated um, mm-hmm. now the, in the last all, the government had to accept that because they were a minority. But obviously, it's become clear they were really not happy about this. They didn't want to have to listen to the opposition's ideas or suggestions. So the first opportunity they get now that they have a majority in the doll is to close that down. And as we said yesterday, that means the business committee and even doll reform, which is another committee that was set up, it's kind of irrelevant now. Because the government don't have to listen to anybody. They can just ram through whatever they want. Uh, so that's what happened to the business committee. The, the, the business committee, in its overwhelming majority, said we should debate this go- the government proposal to change the speaking mm-hmm. times. Yeah. Uh, everybody agreed to that. Even the government didn't say anything at the meeting. So the business committee recommended there would be a debate on this. There were amendments put suggesting compromises which could accommodate everybody. So we were all being very accommodating, as has been the rule at the business committee. The government just sat stony-faced, didn't say a word, walked out, uh, and then walked into the door later that evening and just said, here's an amendment, we don't want a debate, this is happening. Doesn't matter whether you like it or not. So this is a new sort of arrogance from a government that now has a majority. And like, who are the beneficiaries of this? Like, what, like, it seems a big impact of this actually is to give a big leg up, weirdly, to the to the Labour Party, who now will be dealt with above and beyond all the other smaller parties. Um, but like, who's the benefit out of this or what's, what are they trying to get out of this? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, when the proposal first appeared at the Dáil Reform Committee this week, the only people to oppose it were Paul Murphy and Catherine, uh, Catherine Murphy from the Sock Dems. Paul Murphy from Rise and Catherine Murphy from the Sock Dems. Um, uh, Thomas Pringle, who, who would have opposed it, wasn't that didn't happen to be at the meeting. Uh, but Labour and Sinn Fein said nothing, and um, mm. 
you know, it certainly appeared as if the view they took is because they were first in the list of order of opposition speakers, they wouldn't be affected. And it might even suit them a little bit because they would get more of that first hour, hour and a half speaking time. Uh, and what you might call some of their political rivals get pushed, pushed out of the picture. So that appeared to be what was happening. And, you know, I started to blow the whistle on that on uh, Twitter uh, on yesterday morning. Mm. Uh, and people, a lot of Sinn Féin supporters were really angry about it, you know, saying, why would Sinn Féin do this? I mean, surely they want a united and strong left. Because it was very, it's very short-sighted if Sinn Féin were thinking that. And it would appear they were, because Porrick McLaughlin, their whip, tried to defend this measure the government were taking in the morning. Um, uh, but it's actually terribly short-sighted because while it does mean Sinn Féin would get some extra t- uh, speaking time at the beginning of debates, overall, the government's position is strengthened. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I would have thought Sinn Féin would see the benefit, and indeed have seen the benefit over the last number of years, of a strong left opposition to the government, which is made up of them, obviously, as the biggest component, but which includes people before profit, solidarity, rise, Social Democrats and some of the left independents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face from the point of view of mm-hmm. having a strong opposition to challenge the government. Uh, and I think they backed off on it when their own, when it started to get out that they were doing this. Uh, I think the pressure started to come on them, and then they kind of backed away from it a bit later in the day. Yeah, I seen that you tweeted that out at seven a.m. and it was astounding. By like three o'clock, things had shifted almost entirely. Just on that point, I also seen Green Party members complaining that their party were only maybe two TDs uh, a couple of years ago and you think that they'd remember how it is to be kind of marginalised at that stage and given their role in this government could end up back in that position very soon. You also made the point that the government would have presented this in the chamber without debate and I think a lot of people would have tuned in at this stage like on, on Twitter you would have seen people saying oh tune into the doll tv now how did the discussion around those changes and the subsequent vote proceed from that point well it was it was chaos because you see they weren't going to allow any discussion at all they didn't want anybody to know what was happening because of course i mean even for people who've now tuned in it's complicated and that's what they were relying on a complicated procedural issue we won't allow any debate so nobody will really know what what has happened that's what they were hoping for um, so what choice do we have but to stand up and disrupt things? Because, you know, I mean, it's all over the national media today. If yeah. we hadn't disrupted things, nobody would even know this had happened. Uh, you know, there wouldn't have been the Barney. There wouldn't have been anything. It just would have been passed and done. Uh, and the consequences wouldn't become apparent until September. So that's what the government were playing at. And it, I mean, the irony of Leo Varadkar standing up last night and calling us bullies <laughs> when they were using real bully boy tactics to just ram through yeah. what they wanted. So what happened is myself, Paul Murphy, uh, Catherine Murphy, so, uh, so, uh, some of the other left independents, uh, and indeed some of the regional independents and rural independents started to put up their hands to say point mm-hmm. of order, that this is... It, because you can, you can briefly, for a very short period, mm-hmm. speak on a point of order. And we pointed out that this was an abuse of parliamentary procedure, uh, uh, particularly because for the last five years at least, all of the parliamentary business had been decided by the business committee in a consensus fashion. So this was a fundamental break 
from a cooperative consensus-based approach to setting the order of the business. Mm. And we got up to say, on a point of order, this is really outrageous. They're sabotaging the democratic process here, which is what they were doing. You'd, you'd almost, I was watching it uh, um, on the Oireachtas player, like, and it went down at one stage. I think there were so many people watching it online that, that, that their website went down, like, briefly. Their stream went down briefly. But you'd almost feel sorry for Catherine Connolly, who was there having to try to herd cats a bit on it. Uh, um, but because her group, like the left independents, are some of the worst hit by this. I think under the proposal, like, bef- the government will have gotten to speak seven times before Catherine Connolly, Thomas Pringle, Joan Collins, uh, uh, that group gets to speak. Yeah at all it's 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 it's, yeah. it's crazy you know a hundred percent and i felt for, sorry for catherine and, and again it was sort of disingenuous efforts by the government to try and say oh look they're, they're bullying the chair we weren't at all our, our points were directed and i i kept saying to catherine listen with all due respect catherine i'm really sorry mm-hmm. but it, it, we weren't going to allow the government to just shut us up so we had no choice but to disrupt matters. And I felt yeah. genuine. I said it to directly when Catherine came down from the chair. So I said, Catherine, I'm really sorry you had to go through that. And yeah. she said, listen, I, I knew it was going to happen. I perfectly understand. And of course, as you say, her group were one of the biggest groups protesting. Her colleagues, Thomas Pringle and others, were protesting and had drafted amendments to what the government were trying to do and were just as angry. Uh, and Catherine was angry about it too. But the problem, you know, once you're in the chair, you're supposed to kind of balance uh, between these two things and uh, maintain order. So she's caught not between a rock and a hard place. But the real ding-dong was between the smaller opposition parties, the independents and the government. And just what's the the motivation of the government here? Like, obviously, in the last couple of weeks, they've had a rough start already. You think that they would have been waiting to get to the break as soon as possible. But this has exploded now, uh, just before. Why would they kick up this storm at this stage? Well, to be honest, that's the most important question uh, because, you know, a lot of this discussion is kind of procedural. It's a bit internal, and you could just see it as being, you know, parties maneuvering for position. But, you see, the real issue is that uh, an opposition's job is to be the voice of people and issues outside that the governments are failing to address or are treating badly. And we have been very effective, particularly in the last few weeks, in expressing the feelings of people outside. The cuts to the PUP payments affecting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who've done nothing wrong, who didn't want to be unemployed, but were made unemployed by the pandemic measures and then are thrown to the wolves with with their payments being cut. So we raised that, the shocking uh, situation where people were being vetted for social welfare on the way out of the airport, the... Uh, conflicting advice the government was giving on green lists and red lists when, you know, to my mind, the government were actually dancing to the tune of Ryanair, telling people to go and then penalising them if they did go. The ministerial salary increases, which were people were raging about, you know, when you contrast the pup cuts with the ministers giving themselves massive pay hikes. An issue I've been trying to raise again and again is the how the taxi drivers and the music and arts workers have been completely shafted uh, and are, remain shafted. And you can go through the issues. I mean, there's been a whole series of yeah. things where the government have been expo- exposed. They've been pushed back very significantly mm. and they are raging about it. 
uh, and they don't want it to happen anymore. Uh, so they want to shut down debate. And that's what yesterday was about. It was revenge. It was political revenge. And it was trying to lay the ground for a situation where they will face less dissent, less opposition, where the voice of people outside the door will be less heard inside the door. That's the truth of it. Yeah, I, I saw uh, Mick Barry from Solidarity made a, a point that like the first few weeks of the government have shown two things, he said. Uh, um, which is that on, on the one hand, the government are like a right-wing government. They're going to try to line the pockets of the rich and uh, mm. uh, go after ordinary working-class people. But on the other hand, that they're they're weak. They can be beaten. They've been they've suffered setback from setback. They've had to do U-turn after U-turn, and this is partly like an attempt to to shut up the opposition to try to strengthen their own position. Like you know, I, th- I thought it was hilarious. You had Varadkar. Maybe you could respond a little bit to this point that, like, Radcliffe was trying to say that the left were bullies, but he was saying that he was embarrassed by the debate. But he's he's not embarrassed by the like the six homeless deaths that have happened in the last weeks in the streets of Dublin. Uh, um, not embarrassed uh, um, by the the fact that the government is reopening the floodgates of evictions. Uh, um, you know, it, 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 but but I don't know. How would you respond to to Faradkar's argument that? Uh, um, they're the Democrats in this. They're they're trying to stand up to the bullies on the left. Uh, I mean, talk about hypocrisy and you know the pot calling the kettle black. It's it's extraordinary. I mean, let's just remember they're the ones with the power. <laughs> they're the ones who pass the laws to cut people's put payments to have them vetted leaving airports, uh, who ignore the Debenhams workers who are left hung hung out to dry since the beginning of this pandemic by a ruthless company. Uh, And uh, as you say, yesterday, uh, this week as well, another very important bill, the government rammed through a bill to dismantle protections for tenants who now face the prospect of being evicted in the middle of a pandemic. Now, that's bullying. I mean, you know, imagine being thrown out in the street in the middle of a public health emergency into or into shared accommodate, overcrowded accommodation, uh, where your actual health, particularly if you're elderly or an underlying condition, your health is in danger, but you're being evicted by, by a vulture fund uh, who's just driven by money, and the government are facilitating that. That's bullying. That's real bullying. And there's huge numbers of people who are suffering that. So for <laughs> Leo Varadkar to say the people who then come into the doll and demand that these issues are at least addressed or talked about uh, to accuse us of being bullies for doing that is just, I mean, it's extraordinary uh, dishonesty. Uh, But I suppose that's what they do, you know, I mean, really a sort of authoritarian streak that is deep in the DNA of Fine Gael and Fine Fall, I think was kind of exposed this week. They just can't bear the thought of working class people speaking back up to them, uh, demanding things from them. They just have this uh, sense of privilege and entitlement and the right to rule. Uh, and they seem determined to cling on to it regardless of the consequences. Yeah, and I think this, like those type of tactics reflect a larger trend that we've seen since, since the start of coronavirus with the government seeking to just block dissenting voices. We've seen it in the blocking of the press from coronavirus conferences, the suppression of dissenting TDs. How does this for you 
reflect like a growing use of these actions by the government? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what Keen said earlier on is important, though. You know, you could get very frustrated, and I, I was very frustrated this week as they use their parliamentary majority to try and just ram a whole series of retrograde measures through. But he's right to say they're also doing it from a position of weakness. Um, they're fractured. They're weak. They did worse in the last election than they ever done in the history of the state, both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Um, so this is a desperate move to try and shore up their position because there is huge anger uh, and probably a majority of people believe they are not a legitimate government. Uh, and they, they certainly don't want us to be continuously pointing that out. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't be downhearted about it. It's frustrating at one level, but actually there is a rising tide of politicization. People are moving to the left. There is that wave that we saw with repeal, with marriage equality, with uh, the water charges movement, with the nurses' strikes last year, uh, with the Debenhams dispute that's going on at the moment. There's a whole, uh, the ha you know, huge anger about the housing crisis. All these things are bubbling away and people are really fed up with the two major right-wing parties and they're increasingly fed up with left-wing parties who pretend to be an alternative who then go in and prop them up. And so what do you think, obviously, they, they've got, we're in August now, basically, the doll is suspended till September, um, but coming back in September, what do you think will be on the agenda for the left um, in the autumn? What are the next, what are the big issues coming up and, like, uh, what, what should be on our agenda? Um, I don't, in that sense, I don't think much has really changed. It, it's just become magnified from the votes that, you know, from the things that led people to vote for change in February. The housing crisis, the absolute necessity to address the housing crisis, more so now than ever, because overcrowded accommodation homelessness is just, it's not just wrong now, it's incompatible with public health. Uh, the health service again, which was overrun, totally under-resourced and understaffed before COVID. We now, it's a life and death matter, you know, for even more of us now. It was before for a lot of people. It's now literally a life and death issue to build capacity, build staffing levels in the health service uh, to protect us from the second wave. And then that issue of a fair deal for working people um, who have, you know, have not, who were crucified with austerity, gained nothing from the recovery and now face being crucified again mm -hmm. uh, because of the economic fallout of COVID. And then on, over on top of all of that, you have a climate emergency racing at us, uh, which, you know, we need to take very radical measures. And those measures could be very good for working class people, you know, better public transport, uh, more renewable energy, lower energy bills in their homes, if it was done right. But, you know, the market is not capable of that. The uh, profit-driven system is just not capable of that. So I think the, the things that people need and demand are running right up against the logic of a system that's built on profit. Uh, and I think that, that, that conflict, if you like, is going to sharpen. And I think our job, I suppose, is really to get out there and champion the people who are affected, who are hurting, and who want to get up and resist and fight on all of those issues. And I think there's a growing appetite to do that. The Debenhams thing is just inspiring. Yeah. I think the nurses and the healthcare workers who've done so much for us in the last while, I think, you know, if they continue to be treated the way they're being treated now, there's going to be another rebellion of health workers. 
so I would see that as important. I think a lot of climate activists are going to be very, very disillusioned with what the Greens are doing. They might be holding their breath for a little while, but pretty soon that's going to explode. So, yeah, we got to keep being active, keep building the movements uh, and do what we can to fight uh, to give voice to those movements in the in the parliament. Yeah, and I think while the doll finishes up now, uh, all the things you mentioned continue and will continue when it picks back up uh, after six weeks. But I think uh, that gives us a really good perspective on last night and also on the next few, th- few weeks. So I think we can wrap things up there for the time being. So thanks a million for joining us anyway, Richard. Thanks, Dermot. Thanks, Keen. See you, see you on the barricades. See you on the barricades. <laughs> <laughs> and uh thanks a million to everyone for listening we'll be back next time uh same time same place and also just to note that rise just launched an eco-socialist magazine rupture a link to which can be found below as well as other things that we've talked about in this episode so thanks a million see you all later bye